Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we are joined by Adam Gurry, uh, publisher and editor-in-chief of Liberal Currents. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I think that we have had your father, Martin Gurry, on the show twice now, and we've been meaning to have you on the show for a while. But what, I want to just, uh, I guess, let you sort of introduce yourself and to those who are not familiar with Liberal Currents. Uh, talk a little bit about your work there and what tell us what liberal currents is. Sure. The long and short of it is that some of us, after 2016, felt that there were a lot of voices for libertarianism and for the left. Like the you know you think about places like Jacobin, but even places like Democracy, I think Journal or whatever it's called. Um, and we you know we just wanted a sort of big house liberalism, small L, that encompassed the whole tradition and its relevance for today. For those of us who began with a relative really uh, libertarian-ish background, um, that has meant uh, expanding our networks to include more people on the left, um, which I think we've been very successful at. And I've been happy with how that's worked out in terms of creating a dialogue there and, and learning a lot from them as I have, you know, essentially we've, we've created a place for looking at current issues through the lens of various forms of liberalism, but also just creating a community and a place for conversation among the different currents, hence, hence the name. And we're going to sort of jump ahead to a question that I'd actually thought I'd be asking a little bit further into the, the program. Uh, but sort of since you've given the context of this is something that is, maybe developed after 2016. Give us your sense of where we are in terms of, you know, in terms of how liberal America is, again, in that sort of small L liberalism. I mean, there seems to be a lot of noise in the sort of the Trump era, the post-Trump era, if, if we are in a post-Trump era. Um, you know, there's a lot of nationalism. How healthy is small L liberalism? And I don't mean just in terms of politics, but as a society, where are we in terms of how influential is liberalism or maybe not even so, maybe influential isn't the right word. How ingrained is liberalism today? Is it in good, good shape uh, or, or not? Yeah. I mean, that's hard. That's, that's a hard question to answer because you could take a bunch of angles. We were in a piece exactly on the question of how liberal is America. And it was a uh, Ed, Ed Dolan from Niskanen. Um, who's done a lot of work on this using those various indexes that exist and the sort of the underlying data for them. But that's more of an institutional like point of view, right? Um, like he rated us on welfare in, you know, or institutions and policy, but also how, you know, are free and fair elections and, you know, various things like that. Um, but you're you're asking more about the health of liberalism, like among the people uh, in the country, right? And I and I guess and I guess to do that, I guess we really need to define a little bit more clearly what what is liberalism in your mind. So I think it's a very broad tradition, and if you had to distill it down to some basic features, uh, it's the emphasis on individual liberty. Um, there is, you know, there's a rights version of it. There's a, there's a, a natural rights rather version of it. There's a consequentialist version of it and there's the contractarian, you know, version of it. But I think broadly 
if you want to if, like if you want to think culturally beyond just like the intellectual traditions it people most people think in terms of what's the impact going to be on individuals rather than on groups the scope of of freedom um, for the individual um, but also there's a unlike traditional cultures where commerce is sort of looked down on there's a basic assumption that we're the working world and its integration into a commercial society are just sort of part of normal life i would say i would i would take this even further i think maybe this is a little more controversial and say there's a general valuing of everyday ordinary life over the heroic and extraordinary um even though you're always going to to some extent value those things and talk about them a little more than the ordinary be, be, be. Yeah, be careful there because this show does try to avoid anything controversial. <laughs> this is just pure, pl- plain vanilla uh, conversations on this show. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think if, if you, even if you look, you know, I think this is a, again a little more difficult to defend because mo- most of our media focuses on like superheroes and and chosen ones and and you know things like that. So you know, it's sort of inarguable. But I think that even if you look at those stories, the it's about the interestingness. It's about you know es- escapism, but ultimately the endpoint that the hero or someone can get to—that's the ideal—is just like now. Okay, now we, I've secured the ability to have a normal life with a normal family, and that's like my reward for all the heroic things that I did. Um, in most cases, it's not like, all right, now I'm super rich and the most powerful person in the world. And, you know, it's not, it's not a huge power fantasy of exceptionalism. It's the exceptionalism is you're accomplishing something like saving the world so that people are safe to live ordinary lives. And hopefully you yourself are as well. Um, Maybe that's maybe throwing that in with liberalism is a complicates things a little bit, but I think that that's tied very much to why we care about individual Liberty. Um, We, we care about allowing the exceptions too. Um, obviously entrepreneurs, for example, um, are tremendously important. Le- leadership in general is tremendously important. Um, but a lot of leadership is very ordinary too, right? There's the leadership at the level of the community, um, <clears throat> and the voluntary organizations, not just massive corporations or highly profitable, profitable ventures or the, or the presidency or something like that. So that's that's an extremely long, not very concise answer to your question. <laughs> well, and, and this may be a, a difficult question to ask, um, sort of as we're coming through hopefully late days of the pandemic, or maybe it's exactly the right time to ask this question. Um, I, I'm sort of thinking about this scene in uh, the movie Apollo 13 where they're so frustrated with all the problems that they're having with the craft that they, they start to, uh, I think someone in ground control says, okay, tell me what actually works as opposed to telling me what, what all the problems are. And I think that's kind of what I'm interested in at the moment. And I think it is because we're, we're so late stage of the pandemic and there's so much dysfunction. And I think this is kind of where I'm, what I'm kind of interested to hear your viewpoint is, is where, where's that resource of, values of goodwill of civilizational strength that's actually there and maybe that's out there in society that isn't <laughs> isn't tweeted about you know is 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 there something there is there something that is getting us through this pandemic and this really weird time of disruption and disruption to our entire society like the way we live our lives 
uh, am I onto something or are we just, you know, at the, on the brink of oblivion? I don't think we're on the brink of oblivion. Um, I do think something that I resisted for a very long time uh, was sort of the bowling alone narrative that civil society is not where it once was. Um, and I, I think, I mean, Alex Aragona ran a piece with us back in April about civil society. Um, and I think we've gone through a lot of cycles in this country specifically, I can't speak to other places. Um, and we're, we're at the bottom of, of a fairly low one in terms of an active civil society for anything other than political institutions, you know, political nonprofits and things like that. So I, you know, I hope that in the years ahead, you know, speaking of entrepreneurship, I hope there is some entrepreneurship and creativity around building civil society for the internet era, you know, taking advantages of the strengths of our media and technological situation and finding ways to offset its weaknesses in the way that it tends to erode more traditional membership uh, type organizations. But the to more directly answer your question, I mean, I've seen sort of the individual efforts and I guess you called it civilizational strength. Even while the, the political institutions were being completely dysfunctional, you know, here working with the families of the other kids in my kids' school, working with the teachers who often have very little control over what the, the uh, Department of Education does, um, but work within that framework to make as functional a classroom situation as they can. Restaurants, I know restaurants have struggled, obviously, during this pandemic, but a few of them, especially the ones in neighborhoods like ours, where normally people would have been in Manhattan rather than in Brooklyn, um, and so there's actually more people around. There's still been restaurants that went under, but I've, I've been impressed with the entrepreneurship of restaurants that have just experimented with a lot of different approaches to filling the niches of life under the pandemic in order to tie themselves over. Um, I, I think, I think there is strength there. I think, you know, there's a whole literature on resilience um, in the face of disasters that talks about the importance of those, those sort of interpersonal ties and community level ties. And even if we don't have, if, if this isn't being organized by community organizations like churches um, and clubs, um, I at least have seen, some signs to be optimistic about um, in a generally pretty abysmal picture. Let me preface this question by asking, have you read Ross Douthat's The Decadent Society? I haven't, but it's on my on my list and I s- sort of know the, the outline. Okay, yeah. The good thing about books these days is you don't actually have to read them to know what they're about and talk about them. Ross is, I, I, I thought about this because we were talking a little bit ago about the superhero movies. And, you know, so Ross has this uh, thesis that American society is kind of trapped in uh, this decadent phase, which is sort of, um, uh, you know, kind of like an unsatisfying stagnation, I guess you might say. So uh, what do you make of that? And how do you, if anything, uh, tie that into the, you know, uh, uh, current state and and prospects of uh, liberalism? I know that's kind of an out of left field question. but No, it's related. It's related to the to the civil society stuff, for example. Yeah, it's hard for you. Like the superhero thing. I don't know. Escapism has always been a thing, um, especially with mass media. Um, But even 
before that. Um, so I don't know that I would read too much into that particular aspect. I do think there's a few things going on in terms of feeling unsatisfied, which are unfortunate aspects of human nature. One is that, well, it's it's sort of, it, in fact, it's, it's the kind of thing that feeds into the, the Trump movement. I think uh, a mutual friend of ours, Andrew, uh, I actually don't know how to say his last name out loud, Andrew Greishner, I think, pointed out that when you're the United States, you have the biggest global military by far, and your your global influence is sort of even understated by how big your global military is. Um, the only way for you to have a sort of nationalist movement is to think that there's some internal force that's undermining your national greatness, right? So even though you, by all objective measures, you're the biggest, by far the, even if relatively less so than 30 or 40 years ago, you're still by far the biggest fish in the world. Um, you have to have some story about how your greatness is being sapped or subverted um, by internal, you know, nefariousness. And, uh, you know, you get the, you get these, but, but I think what a lot of that dissatisfaction is tied to is uh, we haven't had a large scale mobilization like World War II, right? And we, and we haven't even had something like the Vietnam War, which was, which was, traumatic in many ways to the country, but also involved most of the country. Even the Iraq war, which most people, I think, it, you know, even a lot of the people that supported at the time, in, in hindsight, have distanced themselves from it. But it didn't involve as nearly as much of society as the Vietnam War, World War II. And there's reasons for that. We changed the nature of our military such that it wouldn't. But I think there's, just, just like what happened before World War One. When you have a large, prosperous population that goes through a long period of peace where they themselves are not involved in any, any kind of mobilization, um, there becomes a tendency to romanticize the struggle, even if it's in silly things like stories about superheroes or something where they're fighting some just battle. I think there is something to that idea that people uh, begin to fantasize about great battles of some kind or another. Um, even if it's not literally, you know, physical fighting, um, because normal life is so anodyne. You know, it's not. It's not. And normal life is just. Uh, it's it's one day after the other. It's it's going. It's doing your job every day. It's looking after the kids. It's not. You know, it's not. It's nothing flashy. There's no grand cause behind it. The ultimate purpose is is just living. You know, living your life and you know, loving the people in it. Um, and I think, as I said, in my mind, a big important part of liberalism, the culture, is valuing the ordinary life. And that sometimes when ordinary life is all we have, it's and we're not, you know, in a country that's economically growing like gangbusters, um, so that uh, you know, things aren't dramatically different one year to the next or five years or ten years. I, I don't even know if I would call it stagnation so much as in, you know impatience or you know, fan fantasizing about something more exciting, I suppose. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's that's sort of what I think along those lines. Which isn't to say, like, I yeah. rapidly to say, I don't I don't want an existential war. I, I don't want uh, the the you know the things that historically have made people draw back and take new appreciation of, of the ordinary life. I would like to find another path to that uh, than uh, than than something like that. 
And I think a lot of comparisons, we, we draw a lot of comparisons. When we talk about stagnation, often what we're talking about is comparing the post-70s period with the post-war period before that. And I think there are just a lot of exceptional things about that time. You know, we talk about f- fertility levels now, and I think the statistic that came out recently was that 2020 was the lowest since some year in the 1930s or something, or maybe even the 1920s. But what's interesting about that is that no one ever talks about how low it got in the 20s and 30s. You know, Everyone thinks in, in terms of the World War II generation and how many kids they had, how young they left their homes. But that was a generation that fought a major war and then came home and was ready to live an ordinary life. So I don't. I think drawing your using that as your baseline for a number of things, including civil society, is not necessarily healthy because that's not a model you want to replicate. I don't think. Yeah. Well, we did have a pandemic over the last year, which yeah. could potentially have been a kind of like existential sort of thing, but it didn't seem to have worked out. No, that way, that's right? a good point. That's a very good point. That's it's a very depressing point. Um, and actually, I think that that moves us more towards uh, Ross's thesis. Of there's some there's something fundamentally wrong there, um, where even when we're given this huge existential problem, our main way to react to it is just to divide along the lines we're already divided, and dig dig in, and one side take whatever stance is the opposite of the other side. You know, to simplify, there are plenty of people I know who are conservatives that you know. You, present company included, that, that, that took the pandemic seriously early and said so loudly uh, and earlier than many liberals. And we're earlier on liberals on, than liberals on things like uh, li- liberals in the, the political sense, of course, not in the, the tradition, the intellectual tradition sense. Earlier than Democrats, let's say, on masks, for example. Um, and I know plenty of, of liberals who reflexively were against things like treating the outdoors as, as safe. Um, you know, the, it, it wasn't cut and dry um, who was right at any one point. And I know people that, that were right along both dimensions. Um, but in general, it seemed like at least the, the verbal class, they just always took the opposite position of the other side, even when that didn't make sense to. Uh, and that's pretty depressing. Uh, I want to talk a little bit now about your um, your new Substack. Oh. Um, tell us uh, the origins there. What what are you, what are you hoping to accomplish uh, with your new Substack? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, obviously, since Liberal Currents launched, I focused mostly on writing things that would run there, which meant a range of topics, which is still pretty broad, um, but not just a meditative essay with no particular relationship to liberalism. And I enjoy doing other kinds of writing. Um, I took off my first day off, I think, from work uh, since the pandemic began. Uh, well, that's not quite right. I took my first personal day just for myself in April, and I just spent time writing for writing's sake. And I really enjoy it, and I wanted to do more of it. And my thought was, so Liberal Currents is supported by Patreon. It's a It's a public project, so I don't want to do rewards that involve, you know, you get extra content because I want any liberal currents content to be public. But my feeling was, I don't really care how many people see my personal writing. Um, I want to continue to do personal writing. So I, uh, I don't mind putting up a paywall and then using those funds to help pay liberal currents writers. So that's the general idea. 
Um, I'm doing it weekly. It's usually like, so far it's been like 500 to a thousand words. Um, uh, mostly just aimed at improving as a writer over time. Also sort of, it's been my observation that most columnists who have to write every week generally become worse writers as a result. Um, <laughs> and it was sort of a challenge to, can I write weekly and do the opposite? And I think the main problem with columns is the nature of what they have to write less than the regularity or the length of what they have to write. Um, but that was, that was another, another aspect. Let me, let me ask you this. How difficult, or maybe, maybe for you, it's not more difficult, but has it been more difficult to think and write during the pandemic for myself? I know that sort of with everybody in the house all together, uh, and not having uh, as much sort of time to cloister, get away to my own office, uh, away from home, and uh, maybe even have like commute time or sort of in my own thought process. It's make it it's made it very difficult for me to uh, really think more deeply about things and write. And I think also I think the other thing for myself is that there's just so much noise out there of so much anxiety about the pandemic that it's difficult to come up with something, dare I say, uplifting about here's why things are getting better. Um, but I think that your writing probably is a little bit more looking, you know, it, it certainly draws, draws from a tradition um, and so it maybe allows you to sort of look beyond just the moment of where we are at this particular time. Has it been conducive to writing during this pandemic, having more time on your hand, or has there been external stresses that have have made it more difficult to write? Well, I've gone through some cycles, and in, I would say 2021 has actually been harder than 2020 from a, a writing or reading perspective. Um, and I couldn't tell you exactly why. Part of that is that we had a baby last year in April. And at the be- by the beginning of this year, we'd reached a stage where the baby was very mobile. <laughs> and that is a little, uh, you know, takes more time and energy uh, than, than he took in t- 2020 for most of it. I think that's no small part of it. Um, there's also just, I don't know if it was fatigue um, finally hitting in, in by the beginning of this year or what. Um, but last year I found that Right, doing a lot of research and writing a very detailed essay was a good escape for me from uh, the reality of that we're living through. Um, so, like in April of last year, I began researching the media's response to the early pandemic in January through March, um, mostly just because I was wrestling with what we were going through myself and. I went. I started out writing what was essentially a hit piece about conservative media, um, that at the time was taking some of it was taking the line that the COVID was no worse than the flu. And once I started actually researching it, I felt that a hit piece was no longer appropriate because the situation was more complicated than that. Uh, and I spent a, a ton of time on it. I constructed a timeline of events, and I put next to that in within that timeline when particular articles came out, and when particular like. Tucker Carlson segments aired and things like that. Um, and I just, I, the focusing on those details and reading the articles and comparing them and trying to think of a way to evaluate them. Like how do you even evaluate the media overall? Um, doing that work helped me a lot actually. And so I did a few other things like that. Um, I reviewed Alexander Kisar's book on the electoral college and 
um, Alex Hertel Fernandez's book on Alec and other similar organizations. And what I found with those was that those are real nut, nuts and bolts books. Um, but the the description of the thing that they're talking about is a bit spread through the book because they talk about different aspects of it. So I felt that in a review, I could help readers out by just spelling out, having one section that just spells out the mechanics. So in in the Keysar review, I just walk through every single detail of what the Electoral College is, which is actually kind of complicated. Um, you know, people think that they know what it is, but if you actually dig into it, you know, it takes a little bit. Like I, I worked really hard, and still readers caught a couple of like small mistakes I made in that that I corrected. Um, it's a it's a Rube Goldberg machine, and then in Alex Hertel Fernandez's case, Alec is this organization uh, that you can develop model bills through. But organizationally, it's kind of interesting how it's designed. Um, and he talks about different aspects of it through the book. So I just had a section where I talked about, you know, just laid out in one section how how the organization works um, as far as we were able to tell as external viewers of it. Um, and I know that there are people who may or may not read those books that found the reviews helpful because they're just useful summaries of, of those institutions. But doing that was helpful to me. Like I actually like digging into those details was a good escape from from uh, you know the pandemic and and day to day stuff that's difficult. Um, but by by the by the beginning of this year, for somehow through a combination of baby being more mobile and needing more attention and maybe just fatigue from the year, I found I found it much harder to do work like that. So uh, you you. This sort of raises some interesting things that have been on my mind in the past, uh, and, and maybe maybe this is an unfair question. Which, frankly, I don't apologize for that. I love unfair questions, but maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm about to commission a, a you know some uh, an article from you. Uh, do you have advice for sort of an honest reader who's interested in um, sort of? in an autodidactic way, learning about, you know, this is almost epistemological. How, how do you consume the news? Because I think that we're not just in an information age, we're in such a disinformation age, but on the flip side, there's so much information that's, there's so much information that's out there that if somebody is actually curious and honest and doesn't just simply, um, you know, immediately go to, uh, writers that they know will, you know, amplify what they already believe. There's so much information out there that people really can learn and think for themselves. But yeah. it doesn't seem like we're very skilled at this. Do you have sort of tips on that? Yeah, I actually did write something a few years ago that I can send you um, less about the news than about l- learning um, in general um, and, and the internet. And one of the things I think that is important to emphasize is it's not really about the sources. It's not about the books. It's not about the, even the publication. It's actually, I think more about the community uh, of people that you talk to on a regular basis, if that makes sense. Um, You know, that you're sort of socially connected with, even if it's just on Twitter or Facebook, Um, the, the same. So, there's, there's this guy, Adam Elkis, very smart guy. Uh, we were talking about this. So there's autodidacts, right? And then there's people who are who get the like full PhD treatment of some topic. Uh, but 
both seem to have fairly straightforward failure modes. The PhDs can just get stuck in this small, like, okay, this is the terminology of my discipline. Um, these are the little like hair splitting that we care about. Uh, and I've, I've found my niche and I stay here. And I sort of, even if I do one interesting thing in my career, I just sort of keep repeating that. You know, I, I, I do new papers that are variations of that, whatever it is. I am essentially stuck in an intellectual rut for the rest of my career. That's very common. Autodidacts, on the other hand, are very likely to repeat mistakes that uh, a professional community of scholars will have already caught and talked about at length um, if if they aren't careful. Um, they'll, they'll make, basically, they'll make rookie mistakes and they won't even catch it and they won't even notice it. And they won't trust and, and often won't trust the scholarly people enough, even if they are called on it, uh, to correct it. Um, so there's, there's a lot of pitfalls on, on all sides. Um, the, the best combination was someone like Charles Taylor, one of my intellectual heroes, who, you know, he got the, the traditional philosophy degree, but really and truly what he learned from was he had a reading group uh, with his fellow students um, where they read the classics that weren't being covered in the philosophy classes in any depth. And he sort of autodidactically learned, but he learned with some other people. Um, you know, so he had the training. He always knows what the conversation is within community, but he's doing his own thing and he's got his own project. That's one. That's sort of one extreme good case. Um, but the bottom line is who you talk to. So I think it's less about... Um, consuming a diversity of news sources, for example, if we're talking about news, because many of the hardcore Trump types that I know, like like family members or something like that, they've read the New York Times. They've watched MSNBC. You know, they, they're, they're getting a diversity of sources. It's not about a diversity of sources. It's about who you talk to and who you trust. And there are conservatives who I trust to tell me that I have gone too far, for example. And that's really what happened in the case of that conservative hit piece. It wasn't really me going out and examining the sources and saying, oh, it's more complicated than this. It was me talking about it with some people who weren't even conservatives, to be honest. They're more, I don't know, IDW, if you want to call it that, or you know, pe people who might get lumped in with conservatives in some cases and lumped in with leftists and others, um, depending on the, on the issue. But anyway, they're, they're sort of outsiders to the two-party game in some cases. Um, and they said to me, no, that's bullshit. Here's five examples of where, um, uh, liberal leaning media totally screwed up in, in a similar way. Um, and that encouraged me to actually go and, and dig a little deeper. And as I was writing it, I sort of actively reached out to people that I knew were being critical of various sides to try and get their perspective. So I think we have this idea of learning um, where it's just something you sit down and do. Um, you know, you sit down and you read you re or, or watch, but but hopefully read because <laughs> I'm prejudiced. Um, you, you, you read the news sources, you read the columns, you read the books, you read the papers, you read. I mean, that has to be part of it, obviously. But I actually think the more important part is the conversation with people in, you know, live. Um, so even, even when you're reading about dead thinkers, you're talking to real live people now about those dead thinkers, people who, and, and uh, in the liberal currents community, um, this has been tremendously valuable to me 
uh, because there are people that just have expertise I don't. Uh, so Adam Rust, who's written a couple of, of uh, essays for us, um, but has been a part of the community longer than that. Um, he is both sort of left-leaning. He considers himself social democrat in the traditional sense. Um, he's a lawyer. Um, he's, he's very well read in constitutional law and things like that. Um, and I've just found him, you know, whenever I'm reading something about the law, which I've researched a good deal in the last couple of years, but I'm a non-lawyer, right? So when, whenever I'm reading something, I, I'll run things by him and he'll point out basic things that I've misunderstood about it. Um, and just having someone like that to talk to can make all the difference, either because they have more expertise or because they have a different perspective or both, honestly, because he, he's not just an expert. He also has his own perspective, right? Um, and there are other legal uh, experts who have a different perspective than him. But being able to learn from different people is crucial. And being open to hearing what they say, uh, even if you don't have to acquiesce to it, is important. One of the things I did a few years ago, and I still make a habit of, but a few years ago, I began reading philosophy in a serious way when I got interested in virtue ethics. And one of the things I would just do is just email a philosophy professor whose book I had read to see if I had understood them correctly, or if there was something I missed, or if there was some question I had that they didn't cover in the book. And almost every single time, basically every single time, they would respond very generously, even though I, they had nothing to gain from being so generous. Um, I think people underestimate not the information that's available, which I think most people know in a vague way, like, yes, there's a lot of information available. But they underestimate how willing people who are who know things to, to answer your questions and talk to you and take you seriously, not like talk down to you, but take you seriously and talk to you as an equal um, and help you learn. Um, so yeah, my, my number one advice to people is sort of take seriously who it is that you're talking to about these things. Don't silo yourself and try and become an expert on some topic just by reading a lot of things. Um, you should read a lot of things, but you should also be talking to a lot of people who know about those things and you should be talking to them out to see if you're even reading the right things. If there, there's something else that might be better um, to redirect yourself towards and to, to see if you've even understood or if your criticism of the thing you've understood makes any sense, you know, just, just establishing, establishing those actual live relationships and having those conversations, I think is the most important thing. And that's something that, that's something that scholars have built in, right? Um, even though even though scholars can very much stagnate and they can fall into sort of the decadence and complacency of their field, they have a built-in community of conversation. No, I, I, I think that's right. I, I think that even at a more uh, mundane level, it's having relationships with people in everyday life from different walks of life, yeah. with different perspectives. And I think the thing that's, when you, when you know somebody, you're looking them in the eye, which admittedly is a little bit difficult during the pandemic, but when you're actually having a conversation with somebody, you, you know when they're coming from a place of goodwill and sort of honest belief versus someone who's just being argumentative. And so much of what we see in the media and on Twitter is, is it's argument for the sake of argument. It's hyper-partisan 
versus when you actually engage with conversations who you know in real life, my experience is, is that most of them actually are coming from a place of goodwill. And it's when you sort of respect that and then you let them talk about what their perspective is. It's kind of like you said before, you may not ultimately agree with them, but you can start to understand where they're coming from and what their concerns are. And sometimes maybe their, you know, their opinions have been shaped from um, disinformation. But a lot of times they have real life experiences that maybe we haven't encountered. And then once we actually have that conversation, it may not uh, overturn everything we've ever believed, but it may on at a micro level start, you know, help us to how we sort of orient to particular issues. Definitely. Well, uh, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Hope to have you on the show multiple times like we've had your father. Definitely, yeah. Gotta, gotta, gotta outcompete him. <laughs>